This is chapter 112 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we get a lesson in pushing back against the world's biases from journalist and Project Runway judge Elaine Welteroff. We dust off one of history's lost stories with bestseller Melanie Benjamin, and then we find out if truly evil people are capable of change. If you've ever felt like you don't belong, and honestly, who hasn't, then more than enough, claiming space for who you are no matter what you say by Elaine Walteroff is for you. The woman who became the youngest ever editor-in-chief at Condé Nast and turned around Teen Vogue shares the lessons she learned along the way, as well as the struggles she encountered being an F.O.D. that's first only different. I recently got the chance to chat with her about the trail she's blazed and the impact her mom has had on how far she's come. Why did you write this book and why now? Well, listen, I spent 10 years of my career, um, you know, working to get a seat at the table and I found myself at 30, uh, 29 actually, at the head of the table. And um, I realized that, you know, I'm, I'm at a point in my career where I'm ready to build my own tables. And this is my first, this is my first table. And I'm so excited to um, bring together people to have the kind of conversations um, at this table that I, I wish more people were having when I was in my 20s coming up in my career, um, navigating difficult relationships, um, just trying to figure it out. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've always believed that there are so many universal gems and truths locked up in the stories that women never get to tell. And that's really why, as a journalist, I spent so much of my focus on, um, you know, elevating underrepresented stories and voices and it was and now it was my time to take my own advice and and tell a bit more of my own story with with the intention of passing along some of the tools in my toolbox that would make it easier for the next generation of young leaders who are coming up and other young and other women of any age um, who are finding their voice and coming into their power as well. I love that you describe them as signposts on the path that you've taken so far, which which is great because it just, it means that you're not done yet with what you have to do. Far from done. The last chapter of my book is actually <laughs> just the beginning um, because it is. And and there, yeah, there are so many more stories I will tell. There's so much more to do in my career and so much more I'll learn. Um, but there did it, there was a sense of urgency to the stories in this book. And, and, and I think, you know, we live in a, we live in an age where everything is instant gratification. Everything is, we can see each other's lives in real time, play out every day. These success stories that we think we know, we, we scroll the headlines and the highlight reels, but we only know the shiniest slice of those stories. And I, and I felt, you know, as someone who is being held up as a trailblazer for some of the opportunities and accomplishments I've had in my career, I have a responsibility to make sure that that trail that's been blazed has these signposts that that I'm leaving signposts along the way that make it less confusing, less daunting, and less isolating um, for the next generation. I mean, I think it comes with, it's a responsibility that comes with having a platform. And as a truth teller, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a journalist in my core, which, you know, which means I am a truth teller and a truth seeker. And I felt like I needed to tell more of the truth um, because I believe when we tell the truth, we wake up the truth in other people. You know, you touched on it earlier. There are a lot of lessons in your book that will resonate with all types of women. 
But I especially love your sentiment that women aren't taught to get comfortable with making people uncomfortable. Yep. <laughs> I think a lot it's of people. True, right? Yeah. No. One hundred percent. It's it's something we've all we've all been conditioned to make people comfortable, to make their lives easier. Don't be too difficult. Don't make anyone mad. Don't rock the boat. But the reality is, if you came to to do work that can be game changing, that will shift the narrative, that will you know shake up the status quo, it's going to require agitation. Change requires agitation, and sometimes it requires getting comfortable making people uncomfortable. And I think I, I got my my sort of education in that at Teen Vogue, um, you know, pushing um, pushing this kind of new uh, perspective into this magazine company that had once been one, you know, always operated, operated one way. And so I think when people ask me, you know, like, how did you guys turn Teen Vogue from a fashion title into the most politically, you know, engaged, you know, youth platform? I'm like, I can't answer that in a soundbite. You got to read my book. I, I, you know, I felt like it was important for me and it's not, but to be clear, the book is not, it is, it is intentionally not a story of the story of how Teen Vogue got woke. It is the story of how one woman, you know, me, uh, how I was able to find my voice in order to use it to advocate for what I believe in um, from that position, because I think that story has so many universal applications to so many women and young people um, who are looking to do the same thing in their own lives, right from wherever they are. And sometimes, you know, I will say in terms of activism, Sometimes your authenticity is your activism. Sometimes just being exactly who you are um, and and being more true to who you are authentically in spaces where it is uncomfortable to do so, sometimes that is a radical act. So on that note, I have to ask because, you know, you label it as having a will like steel. What about those women and girls who don't have the guts that you do? Is it something they can learn? Where do they start? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was not, oh, I mean, listen, I was born with a lot of guts. I think a lot of us are. And there is a stat that really inspired my title, which, you know, it's it's sort of, it's sad. It's, it's that young women, um, their confidence peaks at age nine. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And, uh, you know, the, the world has for a long time diminished women and made us feel that our voices are not important and that we are not smart enough, not good enough, not pretty enough, not successful enough now, not woke enough um, to do what we, what, what's in our hearts. And so I think, you know, it's up to us as a, as a sisterhood to encourage each other and to remind each other and to reflect each other's possibilities the vast possibilities that exist in each of us, we need to reflect that back to each other. And I know I would not be where I am if it weren't for the women who've come into my life um, at those pivotal moments and pushed me to be, to be braver, pushed me to believe that I can do more than I even thought I was capable of. Um, and and so I hope this book is sort of that voice for young women and women of any age who need that extra encouragement um, or that extra example of how one person did it. Because while it might not apply 
um, directly. In some cases, it might apply directly, but even if not, I think the spirit of relentlessness and the spirit of reclaiming, you know, space for who you are and, and reclaiming space for, you know, who you were when you were a little girl with all that confidence. I think, I think um, that I hope is inspiring to people. We kicked off in New York City with our book, with my book tour. And I have to tell you that room was filled to the brim with young women who were ready to talk about these issues and to and to share their own personal stories and they really connected with these things and so it's really Oh, it's so affirming. It's so affirming um, because I really wrote this book ultimately to be in conversation with these girls um, and to have the converse, kind of conversations that I wish I that people were having um, in public discourse when I was coming up in my 20s. So maybe in a way this book will be to those girls what your mom was like to you. That's my goal. That's my goal. I actually wrote in my acknowledgments um, to my mom, who is my my honorary editor in chief. <laughs> I've, I've read her every piece of copy I've written since I was a kid, um, all the way through my career. Before I publish it, I'm always I call my mom. Um, but her, I, my, one of my greatest intentions for this book is to multiply her mothering to millions of girls because I've always said the world would be a better place if everyone was raised by Deborah Welteroth. (laughs) She is an extraordinary mother and I have a wonderful father as well who is also in the book and I wouldn't be who I am without them. There's got to be a tremendous pressure on you in being what Shonda Rhimes called an FOD, a first only different. How do you handle that? So Shonda Rhimes has this amazing acronym, First Only Different, and um, I really identified with that. And I think a lot of people actually do. There's a, there's a lot of firsts still happening, and there's a lot of people who are still the only one of them in the room, um, and a lot of people who feel different, and like they're on the outside. And so while, yes, it, it comes with a certain amount of pressure when you feel like you're there to represent for your whole community, or you're there and the stakes are so high because no one like you has ever done what you're doing, I do think it's also... Um, an extraordinary opportunity to bring a unique outside perspective that is particularly valuable in a moment like this, when I think the wor- there is an opening and the world is m- many, many industries are much more open to having um, conversations about and being more conscious of the importance of diversity and inclusion. So, um, so I think, you know, we are superheroes. If we look at it that way, these are superpowers that we have as outsiders. And I think it's just important that we share our stories. I just actually learned this quote um, uh, on another call that said, uh, as long as the hunter tells the tale, the lion's story will never be known. And that is so powerful, especially for anyone who's looking to be a storyteller of any kind. I think it's a reminder to us all to be the lion um, in a world full of hunters. We've been talking with Elaine Welteroth. Thank you for letting all the women out there know they're more than enough. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me on. Same here. Bye-bye. Bye. Author Melanie Benjamin says the best part about writing historical fiction is unearthing those slices of history no one knows about. And that's exactly what she does in her latest book, Mistress of the Ritz, this week's Beach Read. I asked her how she stumbled across the real-life story of Blanche and Claude Ozello, the mistress and manager of the Ritz Hotel in Paris during the Nazi occupation. How is it that I've never heard of them until your book? Uh, yeah, I know, right? Um, actually, I don't think a lot has been um, written about what happened at the Ritz during the war. I had never heard about these um, amazing people until I read a book 
that came out, oh, I don't know, several years ago called Hotel Ampas Vendome, um, which was a nonfiction book about what happened at the Hotel Ritz during the war. And that was absolutely the first thing I'd ever heard about it. So uh, when I was reading that book, as I often do, I read a lot of nonfiction, um, Blanche and Cordozello, their storyline was just one of many in that book, but it stood out to me. And I, I just, I looked at, I did as little, as much research as I could because there wasn't a lot to know about them. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, they deserve their own book. So without giving too much away, why don't you tell us a little bit about them? Blanche was an American woman, a flapper, who came to Paris in 1923, like so many Americans did. Um, She was there to meet a lover of hers who had promised to make her a film star in Egypt, which is like so crazy. Uh, And when she showed up in Paris where he was supposed to meet her, he wasn't there. So there was a young man named Claude Ozello, who was the assistant manager of the hotel where she was staying. And he offered to show her Paris for the week while she was waiting. They fell in love and married. And his dream was to run the Hotel Ritz. And soon after they were engaged, he got his dream job as manager of the Ritz. And then he became director. And their marriage was very rocky as a marriage between a very... uh, I don't know, a very kind of typical Frenchman and an American flapper could be. But as long as they were at the Ritz where he ran the show and she hung out with people like Hemingway and Gerald and the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, you know, as long as they were at the Ritz, uh, it seduces people into forgetting the worst part of their lives. And they were just kind of puttering along there until the Nazi, uh, the German occupation of France in 1940. And what happened then is that the Nazis took over the Ritz. Um, Hermann Goering was headquartered there, but it also remained open to paying guests such as Coco Chanel. And the Azellas found themselves actually sleeping under the same roof with the enemy and forced through their jobs and, and to survive to cater to the enemy, to serve the enemy. Yet both of them found a way to strike a blow against these enemy guests. And um, that's the part I'm not going to go into. I won't share that. But <laughs> but how they did it and what the aftermath was truly redefined themselves and their marriage. It's really amazing. The more I read about what was going on in France during World War II, the more I'm amazed about how many everyday people really put their lives on the line to make sure that the Nazis weren't able to accomplish what they were setting out to accomplish. Yes, of course, certainly citizens did. and uh, But there were a lot of, you know, we now know that, that Great Britain dropped a lot of um, their spies into the country to kind of help stir up the resistance. Actually, the percentage of um, cit- ordinary citizens, French citizens, who participated in the resistance is anywhere between 2 to less than 10 percent of the population actually did. In the years following, I think because we're drawn to dramatic and heroic stories, there are so many books about the resistance and there have been movies that perhaps has been kind of over-exaggerated, you know, how many actual French citizens did risk their lives, although certainly, certainly many did. So I know you mentioned earlier that there isn't really a lot known about their personal lives what sort of research did you have to do to make sure that you got the details of your novel right? Well, um, I read that the things that we know, I read the, I had read that book, you know, just for my own pleasure where I discovered them and I went back and reread it again. <laughs> and I read um, there was a kind of a, I don't know, a slight kind of a bi- biography about Blanche written by her nephew back in the 70s based on a series of conversations with her. But um, 
Blanche was prone to exaggeration <laughs> and um, didn't like, you know, obviously did not like to talk about what happened during the war in the aftermath. So she kind of just made everything sound like it was just a walk in the park, you know, risking her life to help others. And I knew that could not be true. Um, but then I did go to Paris and I did stay at the Ritz, um, which is not something I've ever been able to do before. Um, we mortgaged the house to stay to stay three nights there, um, tax deductible because it was work, it was research, and I got a behind the scenes tour because I really wanted the Ritz to be that third character of the book. Basically, the entire book takes place within those walls, and I really needed to experience some of the fabled luxury and hospitality, and so that that was the best part of the research. <laughs> That has to be some of the best research you, you've ever had to undertake. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I doubt I'll ever get an opportunity like that again, which is why I had to take it, <laughs> for sure. What do you want readers to take away? You know, I think one of the main things is that, well, I mean, this there's incredible slice of history that I don't think a lot of people know about. There have not been that many books about the resistance that inside Paris, not out in the countryside, um, and particularly under the roof of the Ritz. I want people to know this history, this amazing story of espionage and intrigue and heroism going on under the roof of the Glamorous Hotel Ritz. I also want them, though, to see that um, in Blanche and Claude's case, in a very real way, the war did, like I said, very much save their marriage, that love that, that love and honesty and can blossom amidst the worst that people are doing to each other. But even in, in a time of war, two people can find each other again and see the best in each other and love each other again. And I, I really want people to take that away. You've written about historical couples before. What is it that draws you to these type of figures and their relationships? Um, <laughs> so somebody, well, you know, you can't write a book about a happy marriage, right? <laughs> that would be a really dull book. So yes, we are drawn. I am drawn to the marriages that seem perhaps on the surface one way, but underneath were something different, like I did in The Aviator's Wife. Um, and so I'm in, in very much in the Swans of Fifth Avenue and now in this one. Yeah, I am drawn to exploring, um, especially if they're famous people. I just like to, you know, let's let's see what was really going on, you know, that the magazines didn't cover, that you didn't see in the fancy magazine spreads. I am, yeah, really drawn to the things that we don't know, that, that, that people don't want us to know about themselves. I guess that's a better way to put it. Secrets are a great fodder. Yes, secrets and um, drama and <laughs> betrayal. <laughs> yes, all <laughs> great for a novelist. That's great for a life. So are you going to put your own spin on history again in whatever you're working on next? Yes, but in a little different way. It, this time it really is not about a real person. Um, this is, I'm taking an event, a thing that actually happened, in which I'm, I can't share what it is, in um, the history of our country back in the 1800s. And it's something that most people have never heard of. But it was highly dramatic and great fodder for a novel. And this time I am creating the characters that... Um, around this specific event uh, because there really wasn't anyone famous who was involved in it, but I still think this deserves its own novel. I just want to ask one more thing. This, this whole thing about unearthing stories that need to be told, is that really what makes good historical fiction? Uh, to me, it does. I mean, how many more books do we need about Henry VIII, right? <laughs> yeah. Even if it is about a somewhat famous person, but we're like the Lindberghs, but yet when you, 
in order to make a good historical novel, I think you have to find the thing that ha- that the histor- historians can't touch on, which you know that that the thing that ha- has a twist to it that brings an extra little spark to it, which oftentimes in this case means the things we don't know about these people. I I think so. I think that's why I read historical fiction is to learn something I didn't know. I and I have often told by my readers that's what they like about my books as well. I'd have to agree with your readers. I think that's the best part. Um, and, and, and more and more, it's becoming one of my favorite genres to read. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, it, it really has become very, very popular in the last, I don't know, maybe uh, 10 years or so. Yeah, certainly a very, very big, very popular part of the book world. So we've been talking with Melanie Benjamin. Her new book is Mistress of the Ritz. Thanks so much for, for taking the time and talking to us today. Oh, thank you guys for having me so much. Are truly awful people capable of change? I'm not talking about those folks who sometimes do bad things. I mean those really, really evil people who destroy everything and everyone around them. Author A.F. Brady, who happens to be a licensed psychotherapist, explores that exact question in her suspense novel, Once a Liar. She told me all about it. It's the story of Peter Kane, a cunning and merciless criminal defense attorney working in Manhattan. Um, And we open up at the funeral of Peter's ex-wife, Juliet, which leads to Peter being suddenly burdened with the custody of his now teenage son, Jamie, with whom he has absolutely no relationship. Um, So while struggling to manage his new role as a father, the professional tables turn and Peter is accused of brutally murdering his former mistress, who is also the daughter of his professional rival, the Manhattan DA. Um, So as Peter desperately tries to prove his innocence, uh, we journey with him through how he became so cruel and heartless and his attempts to change his ways and become human again before it's too late. I don't think I've ever swung more on how I felt about a character between page one and the very last page until Peter Kane. Yeah, you started by hating him. Oh, 100%. I don't think there was any any other way to start out. <laughs> Peter is not a likable guy by any means, but I think the, the, the propulsive thing is the, the morbid curiosity and, and how much you just love to hate him. Yeah, and you just want to keep reading how much worse, and then when it when it starts to turn a little bit, you're like, wait, can this really happen? So it just it keeps you glued to the page. That, that's exactly what I wanted to explore, the sort of the idea behind, you know, how, how do humans end up this way? How do we, are, are we born evil or do we become evil? And if we do become evil, can we, can we unbecome? Can we turn back to being good? And that's kind of the exploration, the undercurrent of the, the story with Peter Kane. And, you know, he's totally a sociopath. And that's something you know about as a licensed mental health counselor and psychotherapist, right? Uh, it certainly is, yeah. It's, um, it's one of those incredibly interesting uh, diagnoses. Sociopathy is not, it's not a uh, clinical term. We say um, antisocial personality disorder, but it is incredibly interesting. One of the most, the deepest mysteries of the mind, because it's really based in kind of missing a chip, you know, missing an empathy chip and, and, Empathy, to me, is really the thing that makes humans human, the ability to kind of walk in somebody else's shoes and identify their thoughts and feelings and, and want, to, want to feel for them. Um, and if you just don't have that capacity, 
there's that, that coldness that's just fascinating to me. Is he based on anybody you know? I can't answer that. <laughs> um, what, I, have, I have met both in my professional life and my personal life a number of, of Peter-esque individuals. And so some of the behaviors that I write about, some of the things that Peter does, um, mostly the way he observes others in order to get cues of how to react to emotional events and what, uh, what a sad face looks like, what a, what a remorseful face looks like. That was, that was drawn from some people I, I uh, worked with over, over my career, yeah. I think I found that to be one of the more fascinating aspects of his personality because I guess when you're, when you're not missing that chip, as you put it, that kind of stuff just comes second nature and you don't have to look towards other people to see how they would react in, in situations involving emotion and feeling. Exactly. This is just something we know how to do. It's something that we learn when we're little, you know, that, that when you hit somebody, it hurts. You see on their face that it's no good and you learn, okay, you know, I don't feel good making somebody else feel bad, so I'm not going to do that anymore. But it's, it's an inability to access the full range of human emotions. So you can't, it's not that they're choosing to be like this. It's that they just don't have the ability. And when I was doing the, the in-depth research, um, back into the real ins and outs of, of you know, what we call sociopathy. The, I felt very sympathetic in a way because there's this need, um, this really sort of narcissistic need for sociopaths to be loved, to be the best, to be revered, to be at the top of their game. But then when you think about it, if they're incapable of feeling human love, that they'll never, ever actually be able to get what they're after. And that made me feel kind of sad and sort of have, you know, some sympathy for the devil there. You know, change and forgiveness, they play a large role in this book. Do you think people are capable of change or, or is who we are predestined? Uh, well, the nature-nurture question. I think my business and, and the way that I go about my business is uh, that we are all capable of change, and the only thing you really need is to want it um, and to work at it. But if you don't want to change, you're not going to. But do I think that we're... Now, we're capable of changing our behaviors. Are we capable of changing the true makeup of who we are, I don't know. But I do think that we can change our behaviors and change the way that we relate to others and to the world. So it'll seem like we're different, whereas maybe the basis is still the same. I guess that goes back a little bit to observing other people's behaviors because you're learning how to act when you don't know how to act in a certain way. Right. And also, you know, clinical treatment for antisocial personality disorder is usually based in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is challenging the ways in which we think about things and reforming our thoughts. So relearning how to relate to people and, and how to view them. And, you know, in the case of a sociopath, it might be learning for the first time that humans aren't objects. They're not rungs on a ladder or, or you know, minions there to serve you. And then you can come from a cognitive place as opposed to an emotional place to say, okay, wait a minute, I just learned people are people, they're not objects, so I can't treat you like this. And it's not coming from the same place, but it still ends up having the same end. So in another interview, you said that not everyone is a stupendously likable person, but everyone has a story. 
Why do you like to write about these flawed anti-hero type of characters? Well, I really like to explore the flawed characters because we're all flawed, you know, and in some, it, to make it more entertaining and more suspenseful, you know, I go a little off the deep end and make them super flawed. But um, I think that's fun to write and it's fun to get out of yourself um, sometimes and just jump into the mind of somebody who's very, very different from you because even if sometimes frighteningly in the case of Peter, you can relate to some of the stuff that he's going through. Um, because in a, in a way, although he is inhuman, he's, he's, he's fighting a really human battle, a very human struggle to try to be the dad that he never was. Um, try to make up for the l- lacking of support, the inadequate upbringing that he had, but maybe too late, you know? And so I think that a lot of us can feel that we've we've struggled in the same way that he has, if not quite as stupendously and dramatically. <laughs> so what kind of flawed character can we expect to read about next from you? Well, um, in... in both of my 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 first book there was uh, another lovely flawed character and then uh in the third one that should be on its way out into the world at some point um you can read you can read another very flawed character it's a woman who's suffering from postpartum depression struggling to keep herself together um and struggling to determine what's real that's going on around her and what's happening in her head and what's happening in real life and having some real conflict to know which is which and having herself finding herself in some dangerous positions because she really can't tell what is real and what is not right now. Considering what you do for a living and the writing that you that you're doing is, you know, informed by your education and your work experiences, is this sort of your therapy? I mean, in a sense, I, I would say that it probably is. It's kind of, it's certainly cathartic. And also in one of the most difficult things about being a psychotherapist uh, that I had to learn over over my career is to be able to, to separate from my clients. Because one one of the things that drives people to get into this business is this really big care that you have for other people and this want to to comfort and protect and to help people. And, you know, that's exactly what drove me into this business. And then I would have a lot of trouble leaving work at work, and I would bring it home with me. And in a way, this is a way to get some, uh, give some of my patients, even if it's, you know, lots of them combined into one character, give some of my patients the freedom that I wanted them to have or the ending that I wanted them to have. Um, so in a way, it's, it's certainly cathartic for me career-wise as well. There's something about that sentiment about giving them the ending that you want for them that I guess in the end we all want it to be happily ever after. Yeah, you know, I I do want that and in that's why I write fiction <laughs> because <laughs> you don't always find that in real life. So it, as much as I want to do everything I can in real life for all of my clients, you know, sometimes you can't make a perfect ending. You get as close to good as you can get. But uh, here in these books, I can, I can, you know, really get justice done. Well, the latest book that we've been talking about is Once a Liar, A.F. Brady. Thank you for talking to us today about it. Thanks very much for having me. And that's where we'll close the book on this chapter. Next time around, we'll mark Audiobook Month with a behind-the-scenes look at how they're created 
as well as talk with a couple of authors who brought their books from the page to the sound wave. Until then, keep tabs on us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.